to issue now before our people can be taken seriously. It depends on the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves. I believe they are. My opponents do not. Councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. shape the future in the image of our hopes is ours is to determine by our actions and our choices. If we succeed, generations to come will say of us now living that we mastered our moment. America first. This is the right take. Hello, everybody. How is it going? You guys feeling good? We sure are feeling good here today at the right take more so than usual. Welcome, welcome one and all to episode number 68 of the right take. I am Eric Lendrum here with my co-host Jacob Grandstaff. He is back after a couple weeks hiatus. Thanks again so much to my buddy Patrick Von Hanslick for filling in for as a guest fill-in host. And also, of course, thank you to Jack Hatfield of Valiant News for doing an interview with us in the previous episode where we got to go on some righteous rants about Fox News going full trans. So that was a great episode. Be sure to check that out if you guys haven't already. But Jacob is back in the saddle. We are back at it again. And what an episode to come back to you guys already know what we're talking about this is let's we'll we'll pretty much dive right on into this uh let's just get let's get some opening thoughts first jacob on this historic occasion before we do the uh the little obligatory uh, election recap that we always do jacob how are you feeling my man i'm feeling not just victorious but vindictive and we have to make sure that we push our advantage because it's funny because for years conservatives argued there's no point in voting you know, we elected Republicans and they never got Roe v. Wade overturned. They put Republicans on the Supreme Court and they voted in Casey to uphold Roe v. Wade. Well, mm-hmm. this shows that persistence pays off. 
Exactly. It pays off, and it was a long, hard road to get here. 49 years, and I think the number stands at about 63 million aborted babies during that time, but we finally got here. And I, of course, have my thoughts on it. We're going to talk about that. We're going to be reacting to some clips, some legendary clips, colossal salt mines from the left, from elected Democrats, naturally. But before we do that, we have to talk of one more aspect of elections recently I had to talk about, and I had to get your input on this as well, Jacob. So the last two weeks uh, in a row now, we've had a handful of interesting, more interesting primaries here and there. Uh, we had Nevada, which is a pretty big swing state, one of the states that I think could very well determine control of the U.S. Senate this November. Uh, it was a clean sweep for President Trump's endorsements. In the gubernatorial primary, Clark County Sheriff Joe Lombardo easily won the nomination with Trump's endorsement, as did former Attorney General Adam Laxalt, who won the nomination for the U.S. Senate seat. Again, this is one of the handful of realistic pickup opportunities that Republicans have in November, so this is a, definitely a race worth keeping an eye on. Uh, one other thing we had to talk about, we talked about before about how Joe Biden's endorsement record has uh, not been great. I think he is 0 for 1 so far. I know he endorsed uh, Congressman Kurt Schrader over in Oregon, who then lost his primary. We talked about that. Uh, but someone else who was also not doing well, someone who, again, funny, this happened in Nevada, someone else who would also have really bad luck in a casino, I think, just like Joe Biden, is Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders, notice he's kind of, he seems to have been all but politically neutered at this point since Biden came to power. No one, oh, yeah. we don't really hear from him anymore, but he and the, you know, AOC wing and the Justice Democrats, the Young Turks and whatnot, they still try to throw out their endorsements every now and then. And Bernie made an endorsement. For the In the first congressional district, a Democrat congresswoman there, Dina Titus, was challenged by a radical socialized medicine activist who was endorsed by Bernie named Amy Valella, who <laughs> got destroyed by a 60-point um, <clears throat> margin, folks. 79.9% for Titus to 20.1% for Valella. So that is just a truly outstanding landslide for the incumbent against Bernie's choice. Once again, it needs to be said the campaign slogan of Bernie Sanders' entire political career should be no refunds. <laughs> no refunds whatsoever, folks. Don't, don't try your luck too much at the slot machines, Bernie. South Carolina, unfortunately, was a bit of a mixed bag for President Trump. Uh, in the first congressional district, you have Nancy Mace, a hardcore anti-Trumper who leaked text messages and conversations revealed she was trash-talking Trump right after uh, January 6th, basically blaming him for the insurrection, whatever, whatever. So she's a real winner. Um, President Trump endorsed a woman by the name of Katie Arrington to challenge her. Now, what's important here is that for this particular district, Katie Arrington famously was the nominee in 2018 when she ousted incumbent con congressman Mark Sanford. Does that name sound familiar? Former governor of South Carolina. He represented that district, and then he was ousted in the primary. He then ran against Trump. He was one of the three stooges who ran against Trump in the Republican primaries in 2020 and got absolutely zero votes to show for it. Uh, Katie Arrington won that nomination, and this is a very red seat. And then shortly after the primary, she was involved in a very nasty car crash that left her completely incapacitated for the rest of the campaign. She was off the campaign trail and narrowly lost the general election as a result to the Democrat in that race, who was a Democrat by the name of Joe Cunningham. And he even then only barely beat her by like 1% or so, which she was completely off the campaign trail. So had it not been for that car crash, obviously she would have won the election easily, would be the congresswoman from that district. But Joe Cunningham was elected. Uh, he then was defeated in 2020 by Nancy Mace. So Katie Arrington essentially was trying to stage a comeback here with Trump's support. But ultimately, it was not enough. And she lost by about eight points, 53% to 45%. 
But on the other side of the state, in District 7, this was a huge deal. Tom Rice, a congressman who was one of the 10 Republicans who voted to impeach Trump in the second impeachment trial, he got bulldozed. I mean, he got wiped off the face of the political map. Trump endorsed a state legislator there by the name of Russell Fry, who challenged him, and Fry got 51.1% of the vote to Rice's 24.6%, more than twice as many votes as what Rice got against an incumbent congressman, which is so much, by the way, South Carolina is one of those runoff states. Fry avoided a runoff entirely and won the nomination outright, and he's now going to be the next congressman from this seat, again, a very red seat. So that is one down. I think that's half of the pro-impeachment Republicans who are gone now, who uh, I think the previous four all announced that they were just not going to run for re-election. And then you have uh, Fry here defeating Rice. That's five right there. So five down, five to go. So that was a huge victory for President Trump. Uh, Over in Alabama, we've been talking a lot about this one, the U.S. Senate race there. Of course, President Trump infamously rescinded his endorsement for Mo Brooks. And then ultimately, Katie Britt and Mo Brooks went to the runoff. Trump announced his support for Katie Britt, who, no big surprise, won the nomination 63% to Brooks' 37%. So let's go ahead and call that kind of a half win for Trump. He pulled back his original endorsement, but then made an endorsement for the other candidate who then went on to win. Kind of like what happened in Pennsylvania. He was forced to withdraw his support for Sean Parnell. He then endorsed Dr. Oz, who went on to win the nomination. So let's count count that ultimately as a win for President Trump. And then one last thing I want to talk about, and I want to use this to segue into a mini discussion I want to have with you, Jacob. Georgia. There was one big runoff election uh, from this state in the 10th congressional district where famously Vernon Jones, we remember again, remember him, former uh, black state legislator from uh, Georgia, a black state legislator from Georgia who formerly was a Democrat, who was a Democrat for his entire life and then announced his switching to the Republican Party in support of President Trump. He spoke at the Republican National Convention in 2020, and then he initially ran for governor against Brian Kemp, but ultimately withdrew from the race when President Trump endorsed David Perdue. And with Trump's backing, Jones jumped into the 10th Congressional District, which was Jody Heiss's old seat before Jody Heiss uh, stepped down to run against uh, Brad Raffensperger for Secretary of State. Unfortunately, as we know, neither of those ended up working out. But Jones ran. He managed to come in second in the primary behind Mac Collins, who was the son of a former congressman. And they ultimately advanced the runoff. And when I saw that they called the race with just 35% in, that's how you know it's really bad. Uh, Matt Collins ended up winning 74.5% to Jones's 25.5%, a complete blowout. Jones was destroyed, and that was another endorsement from President Trump. So that now brings it to, for the year 2022, nine primary losses for President Trump, which is, again, almost twice as many as he had over the course of the entire first five years of his political career. And it's interesting to note that half of those, five of those nine, are all from the state of Georgia. We talked about the four statewide offices in the previous uh, Georgia primaries, and now we have Vernon Jones here in the runoff. So there's something I I did want to talk about briefly. I actually wrote an article for this, uh, about this for American Greatness, and that's this claim that they're really using Georgia to highlight this. The claim that Democrats are the reason for this. Democrats are taking credit for Trump's endorsements losing in these elections because apparently something they're doing in some states where it is legal is Democrats are switching to Republican just to vote in the Republican primaries against Trump's candidates. And they're taking credit for this in Georgia, um, maybe not necessarily in the Vernon Jones race, but the statewide races. Although a study, uh, as reported by the Associated Press, a study shows about 37,000 Georgia Democrats who voted in the primaries, in the original primaries, you know, Brian Kemp versus David Perdue, all that stuff, which I see that number. And of course, that means absolutely nothing because Brian Kemp beat Perdue by over 620,000 votes. Uh, Brad Raffensperger beat Jody Heiss by 220,000 votes. So clearly 
those were not enough to swing the outcomes of the elections. But nevertheless, you're seeing the mainstream media running around. Oh, Democrats are still winning. Democrats are still beating the orange man. And my take on this, uh, before I get your input, Jacob, my take on this is that this is Democrats just coping. This doesn't really mean anything. This is just desperate to take credit for any kind of victory to show that somehow they're still pulling the strings and they're still going to win in November. But I think this is just a total nothing burger that the mainstream media is just putting out there to make Democrats feel better about the crises that are just mounting up against them right now. Jacob, what do you think? That Yeah, that is purely CNN driven because I tuned into CNN one night when I was in a hotel room. That's the only time that I'll ever watch CNN. There's just nothing else on. But th- this was during it was during the West Virginia and Nebraska run uh, primaries. Mm-hmm. And of course, Trump went one and one that night. And CNN, rather than talk about the candidates, rather than talk about the races, they spent hours and hours and hours. I, I, I would uh, tune in and out like for over the course of four or five hours, and they continually talked about Trump's record, his endorsement record. That's all they talked about. They made everything about Trump. So the Democratic Party, they've, they've been very clear that they're not interested in discussing issues. They're only interested in throwing red meat to their base, which is just absolutely anti-Trump, and that's really all they care about is humiliating Donald Trump. So for them, all that matters is Trump's win-loss record. It's almost a sport. It's basically a sport for them. Yeah. So if Trump has losses in his endorsements, then they're going to immediately claim credit for that rather than point out how much spending was put in, like for in Georgia and Alabama, for instance, how much money went into those races to uh, influence the outcome. I think Katie Britt would have easily cruised to victory whether Trump had endorsed her or not. He didn't even need to jump into the Alabama Senate race. But in Georgia particularly, the people he endorsed, they didn't have much money, and he wasn't exactly. willing to put a bunch of his money behind them. So it, it was it, Georgia was kind of a throwaway. And but they, I do think, and they were go going ahead. up against they were going as we said in the previous episode, they were going up against the state party apparatus as well. They were going up against incumbents like Kemp and Raffensberger, which just stacked the odds against them even more. Exactly. Yeah. In Alabama, Kitty Britt had the state apparatus behind her. So it, the thing is, um, and we've I've talked about this before, how in the South, the state apparatus, the party apparatus really does run the state with an iron fist. So if you want to influence the state, you really have to sit down with the good old boys and the state party apparatus and get them on your side. Now, uh, back in South Carolina, uh, Nancy Mace, she very, you mentioned she very narrowly defeated the Trump challenge, Trump back challenger. And um, yeah. I think that's important. I think a lot of people expected that, that to be a blowout because she had the backing of Nikki Haley. She had a lot of big establishment donors behind her. I think people figured she was going to erase Arrington by 20 to 30 points. And the fact that Arrington made it so close just shows how much of a vindictive spirit there is out there to avenge Trump for the Republicans who stabbed him in the back. Now, Mace didn't vote against, vote for impeachment. If she had voted for impeachment, she would have lost. Yeah, just I like think Tom Rice did. with Tom Wolf. Yeah, yeah, or Tom yeah, Rice. Yeah, did. exactly. But I think, like you said, yeah, that definitely shows that Trump's endorsement power still carries more weight than it doesn't. I think uh, the latest I heard from Breitbart is that now, for the year 2022 alone, his endorsement record, he has over 130 victories now against nine losses, which is still insanely good. Again, that's uh, certainly better than um, Joe Biden's record this year or Bernie Sanders' record this year. It works more often than it doesn't. You look at the other success stories. J.D. Vance in Ohio, he was polling at third, fourth place in the primary. Trump endorses him. He shoots him into first place and wins the nomination in a landslide. Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania. Oz literally would not have been competitive had it not been for Trump's support. It was a squeaker. It was a very, very narrow squeaker there, but he ended up pulling it off. Uh, North Carolina, remember President Trump endorsed uh, Ted Budd, the congressman, who was running against the former governor, Pat McCrory. And even at the time of Trump's endorsement and a little while after the endorsement, Budd was still down by 20, 30 points in all the polls before he turned it around and then won that nomination in a landslide. 
Um, you look at, we. Uh, I talked about this with Jack Hatfield. Uh, Arizona, Trump just announced his support for Blake Masters, and now Blake Masters is leading the polls and is now the favorite to win. More often than not, his endorsement will carry people over the finish line. It will destroy incumbents. You saw that happen to Tom Rice. We're going to be keeping an eye on the future uh, very soon here. In Washington State, we've got the really famous showdown between uh, Jamie Herrera-Butler and Joe Kent, where Kent has uh, Trump's support and is currently leading in all the polls right now. You're seeing disagreeing narratives within the left. They can't even agree amongst themselves with what they want because I saw some articles saying uh, that in certain races, Democrats are crossing over to vote Republican to vote for Trump's candidates because they think, oh, the Trump candidates are crazy and they're definitely going to lose a general election. Uh, Doug Mastriano, the nominee for governor of Pennsylvania, is one example. They said, oh, he's an election denier. He's crazy. Of course he'll lose to Josh Shapiro. So they they turn around and claim they voted for Trump's guy. So like, okay, do you want Trump's guys to win because you think they'll lose the general? Or do you want them to lose the primary to spy Trump? Like, they can't even agree, which, again, just shows how dysfunctional they are. They have no clear message and no clear direction going forward because they know this is going to be a slaughter for them in November. There's no getting around that. They're so convinced that everyone agrees with them on politics and Trump and the so-called insurrection. So that's why they assume, well, if we get a Trump candidate in there, it's a slam dunk for the Democrat. Exactly. But then, you know, plot twist when the Trump endorsed Republican actually ends up winning. Can you imagine, again, if Doug Mastriano were to win that election and become governor of Pennsylvania, he would make Ron DeSantis look like a rhino. He would be an absolutely <laughs> base Republican. His Wikipedia article describes him as a Christian nationalist, all right? Which is kind of yeah. that, that sounds pretty great, especially given what just happened with Roe v. Wade. So we will be coming back very soon. The next round of primaries coming up real soon here, guys. Uh, a handful of interesting ones, including Colorado, where uh, leftists are targeting Lauren Boebert now. They're claiming the same group that takes credit for beating Madison Cawthorn is now trying to go after Lauren Boebert and beat her in a primary, so we'll see how that goes. Uh, Illinois, we're going to have three different districts with uh, incumbent on incumbent violence because Illinois lost a district in the census, so a handful of incumbents got smashed into uh, the same district together, so they're forced to run against each other on both sides, Democrat and Republican. And we will also have New York. There's an interesting uh, primary there for governor between uh, Congressman Lee Zeldin and Rudy Giuliani's son, Andrew Giuliani, and also another seat. That's the one where um, there's one district where Jerry Nadler is running against another Democrat, Carolyn Maloney, two incumbents, where we could see the little four-foot-tall goblin lose his primary. So that will be truly hilarious (laughs) if that is how it goes down. So we will be coming back next week to talk about that. But let's move on, Jacob. There's nothing else to talk about. Roe v. Wade is dead. 49 years too late, in my opinion. It it should have come a lot sooner, but hey, better late than ever before. And I just got to start off with this. We have to talk about, of course, we have to acknowledge who is the most responsible for this. There's a lot of credit that deserves to go around here, of course, to the five justices, the six justices, actually. When I saw that Chief Justice John Roberts joined the majority, I was just like, what? He finally did something not cringe and cucked for once? Color me shocked, but we got to give credit, of course, to the judges, the justices who held the line, even after the leaking of the initial draft written by Justice Alito, they did not back down. And the actual final release version of the draft of the uh, opinion was very similar to the leaked draft. So they basically did not budge even after all the protests and the doxing of their homes and a crazy guy from California flying all the way to Maryland just to try to assassinate Justice Kavanaugh. They held the line and they did it, knowing that there was going to be backlash. They did it anyway. So props to the justices. But of course, Jacob, credit where credit is due. You and I both know the one man who is most responsible for this glorious day happening is President Donald Trump. 
Yeah, and so this is one thing that the Never Trumpers don't have a leg to stand on because the I've seen several articles in conservative media this past week pointing out this is what we were talking about. The politics are more important than the man's personality. And so the Never Trumpers, if they had just if everyone had taken their advice, Trump would have never been elected president and Roe v. Wade would still be the law of the land. And the interesting thing is a lot of those Never Trumpers are very staunchly pro-life and they're very staunchly anti-Roe v. Wade. So yeah, this is kind of this completely debunks the whole never Trump um, fiasco. Exactly, because they always said like, oh, Trump's not really a conservative. They try to claim he's not the second coming of Ronald Reagan. He's a moderate New York liberal. Can you just imagine being a time traveler and going back in time 10 years, the year 2012 at this point, and telling people that Donald Trump would be the man who gets Roe v. Wade overturned? Can you just imagine? But and yet, sure enough, here we are. Ten years later, that's exactly what happened. But yes, he ultimately promised he, – he predicted this actually in one of his debates with Hillary Clinton. He predicted that if he got elected president, he would make sure Roe v. Wade was overturned, and that is exactly what happened. He got to pick three Supreme Court justices in one term because, again, you had the, uh, the, the seat left open by the death of Antonin Scalia, which he then filled. You had Justice Kennedy, the swing vote retiring to be replaced by Kavanaugh, and then, of course – Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who stubbornly refused to retire when Obama and everyone else was begging her to quit while Obama was still president so another leftist could be appointed to take her place. She wouldn't do it, and then she died right before the end of Trump's first term, and we got the notorious ACB Amy Coney Barrett. And yeah, this never would have happened if Hillary had been president, obviously. This never would have happened if anyone else was the nominee because no one else would have beaten Hillary Clinton. And it needs to be said, like you said, yeah, the politics, the policies matter more than the man's personality. I think it definitely needs to be said now at this point with this victory, because as we said previously, is there a single greater conservative victory in the last 50 years, 60 years even? No, there isn't. This is along with guns. I think this is one of the definitive issues that unites pretty much all Republicans and all conservatives. And Donald Trump Mm -hmm. made this historic day happen. He is officially a more conservative and greater overall Republican president than even Ronald Reagan was. Reagan never made this happen. Reagan was president when Roe v. Wade was, you know, the law of the land. He could have done something with his justices. No, he gave us Justice Kennedy, who made gay marriage legal. At the end of the day, this beats that argument that, you know, oh, Reagan was the more conservative, the conservative gold standard. No, Donald Trump is the new gold standard of American conservative, the greatest Republican president in modern history. And I do think one of the greatest presidents of all time. And this victory that he had he is not even in office anymore and he is still winning 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 and biden can't rack up a win to save his life truly a great day a great historic achievement and it's all thanks to president trump well one thing i want to point out about reagan is uh it's true that reagan was pro-life and he did put two justices on the court but with reagan it was very similar to trump like trump didn't make abortion a litmus test he put people on who he thought were going to be strict constructionists just as Reagan did. The problem is at the time, and we're going to get into this a little bit later, but at the time, the justices were more important, were more concerned about public opinion than they were about doing their jobs, which is what we saw in the Casey case. At Casey, it should have been overturned then in 1992. That's mm-hmm. when Sandra Day O'Connor and uh, Kennedy should have voted to overturn Roe v. Wade at the time. But uh, mm-hmm. I just I, I just want to jump into what Alito, uh, Alito's statement on this um, in his majority opinion and we've mentioned we did another episode on this a couple of podcasts back. We went into how the constitutional process works with judicial review. They first look at the constitution and legal precedent and if there's nothing there then they look at English common law because 
the Constitution came after English common law. So Alito writes, guided by the history and tradition that map the essential components of the nation's concept of ordered liberty, the court finds the 14th Amendment clearly does not protect the right to an abortion. Until the latter part of the 20th century, there was no support in American law for a constitutional right to obtain abortion. This is what we pointed out, that starting with the Civil War, and I'm not going to read all of it, but he points out that when the 14th Amendment was enacted, two-thirds of the states had laws on the books that made abortion illegal in all cases. So it's very clearly not a constitutional right when they enacted the 14th Amendment. And the thing is, liberals don't even try to pretend that that's the case. Like, liberals will never make the pro-choice liberals will never make the argument that it's a fundamental facet of English common law that abortion was supposed to be legal or that abortion was legal at the time of the adoption of the 14th Amendment. Instead, they tried to make the argument that you should expand equality and expand rights, and that should be the benchmark of a good justice system rather than following the Constitution. And a lot more was hinted at in this ruling in reference to other rulings that might be revisited now through this precedence of this case. Again, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization is the name of the full case, so we'll just call it Dobbs. But before we do that, uh, what better way to uh, react to this than to react to the reactions from the left. Uh, Jacob, I'll let you pick, my man. We have a handful of clips here of top Democrats reacting, just coping and seething in response to this. Uh, we've got Nancy Pelosi, Joe Biden, Maxine Waters, and Chris Coons. Who do you want to hear from first, Jacob? Oh, Maxine Waters. Maxine Waters, definitely. <laughs> all right, all right. So this is outside the Supreme Court. Here's Maxine Waters after the announcement of the overturning of Roe v. Wade. You see this are going to control their bodies no matter how they try and stop us. The hell with the Supreme Court. We will defy them. Women will be in control of their bodies. And if they think black women are intimidated or afraid, they got another thought coming. Black women will be out in droves. We will be out by the thousands. We will be out by the millions. Oh, we will be out by the thousands and millions. Jacob, does that sound a bit maybe like a threat to insurrection there to you? Well, it's it, well, the Washington Post actually subtly endorsed this kind of behavior because I read an article where they pointed out that the justices, despite all of the public outroar and even threats against their life, they still stubbornly persisted in overturning Roe v. Wade, which suggests that they actually agree with threats against the justices' life lives if it forces them to change their opinion so yeah oh absolutely it's endorsed by you know all the leading figures of the democratic party they're all on board with this and of course it's maxine waters the same one who basically called her supporters to surround and harass and threaten you know trump administration officials if they see them in person you know at restaurants and whatnot and one more thing about that video i just got to mention before we move on uh there's a, a huge mountain of a man standing behind her that you think is one of her bodyguards because but then i recognize him he's wearing a mask that's it's not one of her bodyguards or staffers. It's Congressman Al Green, you know, the, the black congressman in Texas who uh, has like he was when Trump took office immediately. He like he wanted right to impeach Trump for being elected, impeach Trump for being elected right off the bat. Day one, he introduced articles of impeachment. The guy who, by the way, he always and he looks like the same way in this video, too. He's got this ugly, like unruly beard, this unkempt, unshaven, unclean beard. He's got a long ponytail. Like he honestly, I remember a friend of mine said it very well. He looks like if you took a homeless man and plucked him off the street, put him in an ill-fitting suit and put him in the halls of Congress. That's what he looks like. He looks just so unclean, 
unshaven, unprofessional. And you know, he just thinks, oh, that's just my style. That's just my style. But like, he just looks so unprofessional. But that really is to be expected from Democrats at this point. Uh, we've got to talk about Nancy Pelosi, she, who is just, oh, she sounds so deflated and defeated. And it's glorious. Here's one clip. We got, we got two clips here. Here's the first one. Clearly, we hoped that the Supreme Court would open its eyes. But to see the Chief Justice side with this radical agenda, it's just stunning. And again, as a woman, as a mother, as a grandmother, to see young girls now have fewer rights than their moms or even their grandmothers is something very sad for our country. Yeah, fewer rights in the sense that you no longer have the right to kill babies. Yes, they do have fewer rights, Nancy, and that is a good thing. That is a good thing that this right does not exist anymore. It never should have been a right. You don't have a right to kill babies just because you don't want it or because it's inconvenient or whatever. You don't want a baby because it's inconvenient? Be responsible. That's all that needs to be said. That's really what it's all about at the end of the day. It's responsibility. It's taking responsibility for their actions and dealing with the potential consequences. That's what they cannot stand. That's what this ruling is all about. And they hate it. It drives them nuts. One of this was basically one of the pillars of maintaining the sexual revolution and this world without consequences that the left built up for themselves out of the hippie generations. No more. And that is all the more delicious for it. One thing that she's alluding to here is that women and girls are now having a constitutional right taken away from it, which is something that you're going to see repeated over and over again. And as we all know, the Supreme Court, right before they overturned Roe, they also ruled that you can carry a firearm in public. They yep. struck down New York's law. And it, it's it's incredible. Even Obama's former solicitor general was making this argument that the Supreme Court is saying that states' rights don't apply to guns, but they do apply to abortion. But they're not taken into account. There is no fundamental argument that states' rights are final. The argument for states' rights is that whatever – it's Tenth Amendment, Tenth yes. Amendment absolutism. Anything that isn't explicitly given to the federal government is then delegated to the states. Well, the Second Amendment is a federal amendment. Yes. So the states obviously can't violate the Second Amendment. If the right to abortion was a part of the Bill of Rights, then obviously, yes, yeah, states wouldn't be able to outlaw abortion. This is the thing they don't understand. If you talk to the average liberal, they hear – sound bites and then they hear talking points and they match the talking points with the sound bites and they don't really know they don't know what we believe and this is thing a thing that i've heard often is that conservatives know what liberals believe but liberals don't know what conservatives believe and therein lies the great chasm in this country between the right and left exactly and it's also a matter of adherence to the constitution which they of course don't support they don't think we should be able to follow the constitution the constitution was written by a bunch of old white guys in the 1700s you know they're therefore it's illegitimate their opinions don't matter because they were white men and there were no native americans there were no black people at the signing of the declaration of independence or whatever but sorry the constitution well, is the law of the land yeah, for a reason well, see, used to they would well, see, used to they wouldn't even say that part out loud like if you go back 10, 20, 30 years, they wouldn't say that out loud. They would say that in the classroom. Professors, legal professors would say that. But this is a professor at Georgetown, Lewis Michael Seidman. He says the, he writes the long troubled history of the Supreme Court and how we can change it. He, say, he writes, it's time to admit that the nation's highest court has been a source of harm more often than it's been a, a force for justice. By now, it should be abundantly clear that our antiquated constitution written over two centuries ago by white men to govern a small slave dependent republic huddled along the eastern seaboard does not meet needs of a sprawling, multi complicated country that we have become. And he completely tries to he tries to delegitimize the court. He points out cer uh, certain things about past justices' personal flaws that they had. 
as if everyone doesn't have personal flaws. Like one of them ended up going insane early and they kept it on the court, you know, the little things that it was really up to Congress. Okay. Well, that was up. That was the Congress's mistake. It wasn't the constitution. Congress could remove that justice, but you scroll down to the bottom and you find out that he is a scholar of critical legal theory. Oh, so course. this is the critical legal theory, of course, is the basis of critical race theory. Critical legal theory preceded critical race theory. And so this is true with especially a lot of black academics, especially HBCUs. But this guy is even at Georgetown, at Georgetown Law. They don't believe we're training lawyers who are being trained to believe that our Constitution is illegitimate because it was created by white, old, plantation-owning, slave-holding white men and that the Republic was dependent on slavery. But yeah, they don't, they don't believe the Constitution at all. They believe we should completely scrap the Constitution, delegitimize the court. And one last thing on this guy, one thing that Seidler mentions, some of the arguments he makes or some of the arguments that conservatives made to criticize the Supreme Court back when the Supreme Court was being judiciously um, active activist in favor of the left. If you remember, a lot of times we would argue they shouldn't serve lifetime appointments. They should have you know, a 10-year term, a 20-year term, and then be replaced. That's something that conservatives agree with. But now that the court isn't ruling in the left's favor, now the left is coming around to the points that the right has been making for years, that the Supreme Court has too much power, that they should have term limits. But they're not for states' rights when it comes to school choice and things such as that. That's why part of our intro, every time we play that historical intro, we play the part of Calvin Coolidge saying part of his platform is he believes in the permanent court. And the permanent court, because it is one of the few institutions left, that is not beholden to the will of the public. It is not beholden to voters. It's not beholden to uh, certain politicians in office. I mean, again, in the case of the Supreme Court, yeah, the Senate confirms these uh, a lot of these judicial nominees at, at the federal level as well. But they are still largely free to make these decisions without you know, being impeached or whatever. And that is important that there is at least one branch that is not going to just do what they do because, oh, the voters may or may not like it. In this case, they did something that was uh, – well, arguably, this is something that is more popular. Again, the pro-life position has been gaining more support over the last 10, 15 years or so now. I think there are more pro-life people in this country than there are pro-abortion people. But, of course, you have the rioters and the protesters make it seem like this is the unpopular thing to do, but they're just trying to intimidate the justices. And, again, thankfully, it did not work. we got to go back to some salt here. Yeah, we're gonna, oh, go ahead. Just, just one, one quick note. Uh, we're going to include this in the show notes. But, you know, you're seeing a lot of polls now. Gallup and others are showing that. It's like 35 percent of the country uh, agrees with the Supreme Court. 30 percent of the country doesn't support Roe v. Wade. But if you actually dig into the data, and we're going to include this in the show notes, it's actually over two-thirds of the country that believes in some restrictions on abortion. When they ask people, what they're doing is they're basically say, taking the small minority that doesn't believe in any restriction on abortion, and they're saying that's the pro-life crowd, the entire pro-life movement. People are only 25 percent of the country. But, uh, yeah, if you dig into the data, it's like two-thirds to three-fourths that actually don't want abortion to be legal past the first trimester. And what's interesting, I didn't know this actually until I was preparing for this podcast, but the pre uh, the Roe v. Wade regime in the United States was more liberal than every single country in the European Union except for the Netherlands. Almost no countries in Europe allow abortion for any reason past the first trimester. And even in the UK, where Boris Johnson claimed that this decision was going to set back people around the world and, you know, inter, you know, because he's, he's against this decision to overturn Roe, even in the UK, it's illegal to have an abortion past the first trimester unless you have a, a really good reason to have an abortion, such as your health is at risk. So Europe, even as liberal as they are, they are far more conservative on the abortion issue than America was under Roe v. Wade. That is really encouraging, too. I, I was not aware of that fact. But, yeah, it just goes to show that when the arguably the most pro-abortion regime, like you said, finally collapses and there now really is no safe haven for abortion anywhere in the world, 
that is a beautiful thing. That is a great thing. Again, infanticide should be made illegal again. And that's this goes a long way towards that. Going back to the salt, we've got to uh, react to a segment of uh, Joe Biden's speech. Because Biden, of course, gave a speech off of teleprompter. Obviously, they obviously shot him up full of meds so he wouldn't be too, you know, off his rocker. And here is just a clip of that. Make no mistake. This decision is a culmination of a deliberate effort over decades to upset balance of our law. It's a realization of an extreme ideology and a tragic error by the Supreme Court, in my view. The court has done what it has never done before, expressly take away a constitutional right that is so fundamental to so many Americans that had already been recognized. Again, I wasn't aware it was an extreme ideology to not support killing babies, Jacob, but apparently that's that's an extreme position now. But but there it <laughs> is again. Catholic exactly. Yes. Yeah, so-called Catholic. Are you joking me? Yeah. It's no wonder people want him, you know, excommunicated and not be able to receive communion and whatnot. But it's like there it is again. He said it's a fundamental constitutional right, even though it is not in the Constitution, as we have already said, and as the court itself ruled. Uh, wanted to go back to uh, Pelosi. Pelosi had this is an even funnier one where she uh, does her best to give credit where credit is due for uh, why this decision ultimately finally happened. Today, the Republican-controlled Supreme Court has achieved their dark, extreme goal of ripping away a woman's right to make their own dis- reproductive health decisions because of Donald Trump, Mitch McConnell. And the Republican Party, their supermajority in the Supreme Court, American women today have less freedom than their mothers. Rip away their rights. Huh, the interesting use of language there, Pelosi. I wonder what other what uh, action with regards to reproductive rights, as you call them, involves violently ripping something away. Hmm, I, 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 can't, I can't imagine. I can't possibly imagine. She gives credit to Mitch McConnell there because, of course, they can't resist dunking on him. But realistically, no conservative is giving McConnell credit for this one. Any Senate majority leader worth half their salt would have ultimately gone along with any of the judges nominated by President Trump. So Mitch McConnell really just happened to be the man who was there, the right place, the right time. But I, I love that long pause where you can tell she's like, trying to fake cry but she just can't do it because she's so old but it just the tears just wouldn't come they just wouldn't come one last one here this is this is a bonus i uh, when i heard this i could not stop laughing this is senator chris coons i'm also concerned about their ambition uh, to knock out the underpinnings of the administrative state the ability Mm -hmm. of the federal government to provide for clean air and clean water for um, safe baby formula and for uh, access to safe food and um, safe working space. So so by outlawing Roe v. Wade, uh, the Supreme Court is going to take away your clean air and clean water? Oh, my God. This is literally this is like dystopian novel kicked into overdrive that like literally you know uh time skip 10 years later the the sky is dark and the rivers are running polluted with with green water all because you can't kill babies anymore and also uh, baby formula really senator coons your party is the reason we don't have any baby formula what are we talking what are you talking about right now dude yeah well this this goes to their belief about middle america I remember back whenever there was a big debate over the Confederate monuments and all. This was years, like 10 years ago. On CNN, they were they brought on one of the sons of Confederate veterans, and they were talking about the Civil War. And the, the CNN host said, well, if the South had won, we would still have slavery. Like in the year 2010, we would still have slavery if the Confederacy had won. The New York Times uh, just yesterday 
they put out an article claiming that if because of Roe v. Wade, this now opens the door to overturn all the other due process cases, including what's the one that legalized interracial marriage way back in the 60s, um, Loving, Loving uh, versus Virginia. Uh-huh. They were claiming that this would could potentially overturn that. And then certain states would make interracial marriage illegal. Like in the year, in the 2020s, in this decade, they believe the New York Times believes that there are certain states in this day and age that would make interracial marriage illegal. But it shows the view that they have of middle America. They, they view America, middle America, as being a bunch of backwards hicks still stuck in the past 100 years ago. Like they, don't, they, they don't see people as having evolved into the current era that we live in. Like I don't know if they still think that people in middle America don't have running water or electricity, but this is their view. Like They believe that if it's not for the federal government and the courts for, uh, promoting equality and defending minorities, that middle America will oppress minorities uh, just as bad as they did back in the 1800s. As if Clarence Thomas is going to vote to overturn, you know, his own marriage to his white wife. Yeah, that, that totally <laughs> exactly, makes sense. Yeah. But but yeah, that's the thing, too. Exactly. Like you said, is that I think this ties back to their strategy when the draft was first leaked. This is what they tried to do to try to get the rest of their minority coalition their you know, their house of cards, diversity, multicultural coalition to care. Is that because, of course, black voters generally, when it comes to their political priorities, they don't care nearly as much about abortion. They care more about, you know, systemic racism or whatever uh, possible pushes for uh, reparations, like what we talked about, what the uh, Biden administration did to give reparations to black farmers. They don't care nearly as much about abortion. You know, the, the gay community doesn't care nearly as much about abortion. But this is the Democrats' effort to try to tie it to all the other groups in their coalition to say oh look they came for abortion so they're gonna come for you next they're gonna come for your interracial marriage they're gonna come for your gay marriage they're trying to make the rest of their coalition care about something that affects one particular segment of their the coalition they've built for themselves politically and it's not working it didn't work then and it's not working now you're not going to get these voters to care black lives matter is not going to go take to the streets and riot because abortion has been overturned it's just not going to happen one last thing i want to point out before we close this episode is the roberts decision so when this the news was released the headlines i saw was five four at first i I was like wait a minute roberts sided with the liberal minority to not overturn roe because roberts uh, has traditionally been one of the most anti, at least seemingly anti-Roe justices there. And it turns out he want, what he wanted to do was preserve the right to abortion, the preserve the constitutional right to abortion while upholding the Mississippi law and doing away with the viability argument. But the thing is, he never he didn't even provide a defense that there is a constitutional right for a woman to have an abortion. And it's funny, he's by himself issuing this opinion. Not one single justice agreed with him on this. And Alito pointed out, like, you're not even making any argument. Ever since his Obamacare decision, his whole shtick is he's wanting to maintain the legitimacy and popular opinion of the court. He's acting as a politician rather than a justice. And this is what they did with Casey. That rather than act as justices, they, they acted as politicians, and they didn't feel like a majority of Americans wanted Roe to be overturned. It doesn't even, at least he could have done, it said, okay, abortion should be a constitutional right. Here's why bullet points, but he even make that minimal effort. It really is embarrassing, too, that he is the chief justice. Like, we realistically— it is, yes. I mean, again, with the new— this, supermajority we have as, as Pelosi said this supermajority of conservatives Republican appointed justices we have on the court that realistically it's thank God we don't need Roberts anymore it's 6-3 technically 0-5-4 at this point the real ideological 
chief justice of the Supreme Court is Justice Clarence Thomas, and that is so beautiful. You really could – the shadow chief justice, I guess, would be a cool-sounding nickname for him at this point. But yeah, it should be someone else. It, this guy is such a joke. He's a Bush appointee, of course, so no wonder he's so terrible. But realistically, it should be Justice Thomas or maybe even Alito at this point because, again, this was Alito's decision ultimately – but, yeah, uh, he is just such an embarrassment. He can't stop making a fool out of himself. He wanted to basically ha- eat his cake and have it, too, which is just typical of anybody affiliated with the Bushes at this point. Oh, again, not Alito. Alito was also appointed by Bush, and he is amazing. So we got to take Well, I will say about Alito is he Alito is a libertarian ideologue. So he's one of these libertarians that he's going to stick to his libertarian philosophy regardless of you know, political pressure who appointed him. Hopefully, it seems at the very least that uh, Justices Thomas and Alito, who are both in like their early to mid-70s, have a good like 10, maybe 15 years left each uh, before they ultimately retire or what have you. So we, we've got, and of course, Kavanaugh and Gorsuch and Barrett are all on the younger side of things as well. So it's going to be, it's going to be so good. What other cases could come up? Because as we talked about, this was hinted at in the ruling, uh, Clarence, uh, Justice Thomas said this, he referenced Obergefell by name, and let me go ahead and pull up the uh, screenshot here. Quote, for that reason, in future cases, we should reconsider all of this court's substantive due process precedents, including Griswold, Lawrence, and, wait for it, Obergefell. The 2015 ruling that declared same-sex marriage is a right and is legal in the United States. Can you imagine, maybe this is getting a little too ahead of ourselves, Jacob, but can you imagine... Obergefell being overturned in another five to ten years. Well, that would be fantastic. But what's funny is Griswold, which is that rule, gay sex is legal, but you can't a state can't criminalize it. Of course, obviously, no state is going to criminalize it in the 21st century. But just to skip the 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 terror that this is going to create in the hearts and minds of homosexual leftists is just going to be fantastic. Because I mean, honestly, that's not an issue for the court for the states you know and it's up to the state legislatures and this is one thing that not enough people are saying to the lefties it's like look okay if you have strong feelings about abortion go take it up with your state legislator maybe you'll actually learn their name because most people don't have any idea what the name is of their state senator they don't know their state house member they don't know any of that because everything is so federalized exactly yeah and become a little more politically involved and informed this is truly again i can't emphasize how great this is this is truly a great historic day i can't believe that i'm seeing it a lot of us never thought it would happen but it is here and we are still enjoying the salt and the absolute moaning and wailing and gnashing of teeth that is coming from the left and the feminists gathered at the Supreme Court. I had friends who were at the Supreme Court when it was announced, and it was mostly the pro-lifers who were there at first, and it was just celebratory champagne. I saw one video of someone actually opening a champagne bottle and spraying it around in the crowd after they announced it. It was a truly, truly great thing. And again, thank you to President Trump for making this happen, and let's just imagine that even more things like this can be done in the future. And that is all the time we have left for this celebratory edition of The Right Take. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. As always, be sure to follow us for all of our latest content at our website, righttakepodcast.com. The full list of podcast platforms and social media sites where we are available, righttakepodcast.com slash subscribe. And as always, guys, if you are feeling ever so generous and want to help the show in any way you can, righttakepodcast.com slash support. We'll talk to you next week, guys.